the intercessions as always. Thank you. Am I in the right place? A bit forward? A bit back? I don't know. How about that? Yeah? Well, I've got the thumbs up from Stefan, so, so you've been overruled, all right? <laughs> After Sophie's talk on unity last week, today we're looking at how we need to develop our thinking in our series, this blueprint series that we're looking at, both as individuals and as a church. And I noticed, uh, I don't know if you saw this, Tom in his email on Friday put included in that that he'd never heard a sermon on thinking before. Now he's not here, but I know he's going to watch this later. He said he'd never heard a sermon on thinking before, and he says, and that it will apparently be well worth listening to. <laughs> now I don't know what he, what he knows that I don't, uh, but a uh, bit of pressure I felt from the vicar at that point. Now to tackle it, I'm going to use a well-known passage from Paul's letter to the young church in Rome, a church like so many others in those early days of Christianity that were struggling with a raft of divisive issues, particularly the issue that Jesus Christ is the bedrock of their faith as the foundation on which everything else is to be built. And at the heart of this was what Paul called righteousness through faith. In other words, that salvation comes through Christ, through God's good grace, not through obeying the laws that Moses had laid down in the first five books of the Old Testament. Jesus, he says, is the fulfillment of the law. And salvation is now available to everyone, Gentile as well as Jew. But he knew that the religious authorities were putting huge pressure on these young Christians, these new converts in Rome and elsewhere, to follow the Mosaic laws in areas like eating certain foods and other things too, but crucially, that they should all get themselves circumcised. And he knew that he had to counter that pressure to convince them that Christ brings freedom, not condemnation, as was always inevitable when people fell well short of the law's demands. So in the early chapters of this letter to the church in Rome, he talks about the future glory, as Kathy was just praying, for waiting for us in Jesus Christ in the kingdom. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that if he is for us, then no one can stand against us. Now, this is revolutionary stuff, overturning hundreds of years of Jewish teaching. It meant looking at the world through a completely different prism. And as his teaching rolled down the centuries, it continued to turn the world upside down. It prompted Martin Luther, for example, to begin his work of reformation 500-odd years ago, a work that resulted in the birth of the Protestant church, the Protestant denomination that we represent here today, that we're part of today. And reading Romans, he said, enabled him to grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, he says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Great, great cry. And he wasn't alone. Brilliant Christian minds from St. Augustine to John Wesley and John Bunyan came away from reading Romans transformed, newly illuminated. As another preacher once put it, 
reading Romans repeatedly results in revival. Now in this passage we'll hear about not conforming to the pattern of this world, about transformation and about God's perfect will for our lives. And after we've heard it, Hugh's going to come and read now, I'll attempt to look at each of those in turn, and in the end, I'll hope that it's been worth listening to. Hugh, come and share with us, please. The reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 21. A living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. Humble service in the body of Christ. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ do we. We, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy, in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love in action. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, 
says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hugh. It's a great passage, and um, when I started putting this together about four, five days ago, I ended up with far too much stuff, but you'll be delighted to know that I have trimmed it down a little. <laughs> the word transformation is used a lot today in business, politics, and elsewhere. Grand vision statements in business plans and party manifestos talk of transforming the product or the nation declaring that things will never be the same again, that everything will become more efficient, more effective. The mistakes of the past will never be repeated. There will be better outcomes, more profit, less pain. In a world where personality, not character, secures jobs, attracts lovers, catches the camera's eye and lands the prize of public office, apparently everything can be transformed. But in my experience, the mistakes usually continue to be made and the transformation never somehow changes much as last week's events in number 10 perhaps prove. Transformation doesn't just happen. It doesn't happen by producing impressive PowerPoint slides or by encouraging people to simply nod their heads around a boardroom or a cabinet table as the latest plan, policy or product is laid out. Transformation only occurs when individuals, individual people are changed, when their minds are renewed. But minds, as someone once said, are like parachutes. They have to be open to work. And the reality is that most minds are pretty closed and are only opened by a dramatic change of heart. Which is what what Paul is talking about in this passage that Hughes just read to us. A transformation that will genuinely lead to a radical change of heart and stop us conforming to what he calls the pattern of this world. So first, what is this pattern? What does it look like? Ultimately, I think in the world's mindset, everything revolves around the individual self. My needs, my ambitions, my possessions. It began in the Garden of Eden, and it's been that way ever since. In his first letter, John describes the worldly way of living, the world's system, as the cravings of sinful man, the lusts of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. He says that the world order is a system governed and controlled by Satan, who has a dominating influence over all aspects of it. The spiritual realm of evil, he adds, is a kingdom of darkness that stands in opposition to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth and morality. Psalm 115 puts it like this, The world's idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands, and those who make them, become like them, and so will all those who trust in them. Or as somebody much cleverer than I once said, what what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that in the futility of their thinking, those in the world, part of the world system, are darkened in their understanding and separated from the love of God and the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to a hardening of their hearts. 
Having lost all sensitivity, he says, they have given themselves over to sensuality with a continuing lust for more. And James, the half-brother of Jesus and spiritual overseer of the church in Jerusalem, is just as tough. Do you not know, he says, that friendship with the world is hostility to God? And in his letter, John goes on to say that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. In other words, the world's system is at war with God. Getting in bed with the evil world system means warfare against God. Whoever wishes to be best friends with the world makes himself an enemy of God. The problem is that the world's way of doing business is seriously contagious. We all know that. Nonetheless, we have to choose whose side we're on, which bed we're going to climb into. It's either or, not both. We can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God at the same time. We can't straddle the fence with one foot in and one foot out. The love of the Father and the love of the world cannot coexist in the same heart. One will inevitably displace the other. Now, like so much teaching in the Bible, this is tough stuff. And it took me a long time to think about how whether to use those verses and present them this morning. But the reality is, if we aren't going to conform to the world's thinking, values, perspectives, and agendas, if we're going to stand firm for Christ, then we need to recognize the truth of those verses, and many others like them in Scripture. And we need to replace the world's values, the world's system, with something else. And in our passage today, Paul tells us what that other something looks like. To love sincerely, to hate evil, to cling to what is good, to be joyful, patient, and faithful in prayer, to live in harmony, not to be proud or conceited or repay evil for evil, to do what is right and be at peace with everyone, overcome evil with good. Now, of course, this again is easier said than done. Which is why Paul then goes on to say that the only way it is going to happen is if there is a transformation. A transformation as a result of minds being opened and renewed. In Ephesians he says that the followers of Christ are to put off the old self. This is us. Put off our old selves, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires in order to be made new in the attitude of our minds. But the change necessary to bring this about was and is so substantial that uh, that Paul uses the Greek word metamorphu to describe it. And that's the word that's translated into our English Bibles as transformed. But perhaps it's better to think of that metamorphosis that takes place when a caterpillar crawls into the cocoon and then emerges sometimes later as a glorious butterfly and flies away. There's no resemblance between the two. The caterpillar couldn't possibly have dreamed what life would be like when he emerged as a butterfly. The freedom it brings and the horizons that open up. Like the butterfly, when we accept Christ, we begin a process of becoming a new person with a different perspective, 
our thinking is rewired. We get a new value system. One that says that I'm more concerned with God's will than my own. I care more about what God thinks than what people think. Less about keeping up with the Joneses and more about keeping in step with God's will for me and my life. Freed from continuing to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, we allow Christ to gently mold us into his likeness. We begin to think and live differently from the way that the world does. We were beginning to reflect him as an image reflects the original. We begin to live a Christ-centered life rather than a self-centered life. When the love of the Father moves into our heart, the love of the things of this world begin to move out. But it's a struggle. It's hard because we can, still, uh, we can still so easily be lured back into the world's way of thinking. The world, as I said earlier, is contagious. There's got to be a new love, a greater love, if we are to hold firm. A love so powerful that we will never settle for anything less. It can't just be an intellectual change. It has to be deeper than that. Love for the world is not going to go away naturally. If we attempt to simply apply sheer willpower... It's not going to work. Like a New Year's resolution, just saying, well, I'm going to try and not to love the world, that won't hack it. We'll be back where we started in about a day or so, unless something dramatic happens. Now, like most, if not all of you, when I was growing up, all that really mattered to me was me, my personal hopes and desires. I valued and worshipped the things of this world above everything else, ambitions and material goods captivated me and my thinking revolved around them then I met someone who transformed that thinking I met Christine and I told her I was going to embarrass her this morning suddenly everything changed it was no longer about me it was about her and us I was learning to fly at the time, and with the limited hours of free time available to me at the Royal Military Academy over at Sandhurst, I now had to choose how I was going to spend that free time. I could continue to go flying, which was great and I loved, or I could see Chrissy. Suddenly, there was a far greater love in my life. And instead of driving west to Blackbush Airport, I drove east to where Christine lived. A new love, a greater love pulled me away a decade or so I met with Jesus and over time an even greater love filled me we talked or the reading talked of uh, making a lifetime of sacrifice a living sacrifice hence my sacrifice yesterday when I didn't listen to the England's rugby game against Australia in order to finish this sermon maybe that wasn't what Paul was referring to but you know what I mean the bottom line is that a transformed life comes from finding a greater love and necessitates a transformed mind. The battle for the Christian life is a battle between a love for Christ and a love for this world. It's a battle for the Christian mind, for our minds. As the mind goes, so goes the life. And the instrument that God uses to transform us is his word. 
Renewing our minds means rooting and grounding our convictions in Scripture. Only that will give us a Christian worldview, an eternal perspective. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus asks his Father to sanctify them by your word. Your word, he says, is truth. So, we must read the Bible. We must study it. We must reflect upon it, immerse ourselves in it. We must hear it and sit under its preaching and its teaching. We must meditate upon it and we must memorize it. I heard the story the other day of an old Cherokee who told his grandson that there is a battle between two wolves inside us. One is evil. It's anger, jealousy, greed, resentment, inferiority, lies and ego. The other is good. It's joy and peace and love and hope, humility, kindness, empathy and truth. And the boy thought about this for a while and he then asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old man quietly replied, the one you feed. Opened up by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to feed our minds with God's word. Only that will renew our minds and transform our lives. As the old maxim says, Bibles that are falling apart are owned by people who aren't. And what is the result of not being conformed to this world, of being transformed by the renewal of our minds? Here it is in Paul's letter, verse 2. So that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will for us. And then we learn to apply it. We cannot now simply draw up a drawbridge or put a bucket over our heads and hope that the world will somehow go away. Unless the good Lord is calling you to head off and live as a hermit in a cave, you're never going to be isolated from the world's value system. We're in it. We can insulate ourselves from it, but we must engage with it in order to bring others into the kingdom. Most of the problems in life arise because of two reasons. Even we act without thinking or we keep thinking without acting. It's not enough to learn the truth. We must love the truth and live the truth. It's not enough that we master the word. The word must master us. And we must allow it to affect every area of our lives as we engage with the world. In order to understand and apply God's will, we need to think about what is happening in the world system around us and then engage. We read articles. We listen to well-argued webinars or presentations. We discuss them with our family, with our friends, in our life groups. Now, what the result of that will look like for you, frankly, I haven't got a clue. But I can offer you some food for thought, some ideas perhaps, to get you thinking like the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, we are living in a divided world. Secular humanism, godless philosophies and ideologies, shameful morals dominate the worlds of politics, education and the media. Social media has fractured our society, making us angrier, more anxious and depressed. It encourages dishonesty. It creates mob dynamics 
and chips away at trust, leaving us unable to speak the same language or recognize the same basic truth. Truth has become whatever people want it to be. Character doesn't matter. All that matters is the ability to project your personality online. Today's school pupils, along with many others, get their truths, news, opinions, and morality from TikTok or Twitter. Whilst Mark Twain once wrote that an honest man in politics shines more than he would elsewhere, a guy called Will Rogers, perhaps more realistically, recently said, if you ever injected truth into politics, you wouldn't have any politics. Legislation is being passed with serious implications on issues like our families, the beginning and the end of life. Sexuality and gender identity are being pushed with religious fervor in our schools with little basis or little or no basis in science or fact. Reading the other day, 11-year-olds are being presented with a list of options and being asked to work out for themselves whether they're straight, gay, or bisexual. 11-year-olds, primary school children. They're told that prostitution is a rewarding job, whilst not being told that having sex with someone under 16 is illegal. Abortion is being promoted as reproductive health care, or simply a method of contraception, that the baby in the womb is not yet human and therefore disposable. And the Church of England is debating what it calls living in love and faith, which could dramatically affect all of our lives on these and other issues. So we all need to think and pray about what does the Lord want us to do in this situation, in those world values that we're living amongst. Now, I don't know the answer again for you, but that may range from writing to your MP or the media, becoming a school governor, or standing to become a local council member, as some people from St. Paul's certainly have done. Or it may mean moving a child out of a school, from a school, that refuses to listen to your concerns. You may want to influence thinking in your home or your place of work, including up, speaking up at business meetings about the way decisions are taken or the way that people are treated in the company. It may mean supporting and praying for individual Christians in Parliament, particularly at the moment, or Christians in government, or organisations like Theos or Christian Concern. And ultimately, it may mean putting your reputation on the line as you live differently and speak out on whatever issue you feel called to stand on. Stand firm on a line that you aren't prepared to cross, even though the world, or indeed the church, says is legal or permissible. So as we finish, let me offer you a couple of questions to reflect on. As you look back and examine your life, how did your thinking change as a result of meeting Christ? Did your life and your behavior change with it? Or, or has it still? Or have you still got one foot in both camps? Are you too at home in this world and forgotten that your citizenship is in heaven? Have you become a friend of what John calls a system governed and controlled by Satan, complicit 
by avoiding being involved in any of the issues that dominate our world. And if so, what are you going to do about it? You can leave here today and do nothing. We need our minds renewed so that we can be transformed and become what God wants us to be out there in the world's system. Now again, I recognize that none of that is easy. But we're not alone in working our way through it all. We have Christian friends and family and life group and so on. But more importantly, the golden thread running through the Bible is that the Lord will never leave us or forsake us. God is with us in the fire. And when the storm seems to be breaking out over us, he is there holding back the waves. We're going to sing the song in a minute that Joe is going to lead us in, which says exactly that. In chapter 22 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our minds. And at the end of it, he tells us to go out into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us to do. And surely, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So let's get out there and do it. And remember, if at first you don't succeed, have some cake and try again. Amen. Tim, it's a little bit hard to now lead you into prayer ministry now that Tim's mentioned cake, but we will try.